0: Please open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, the second book in the Old Testament, written by Moses, Exodus chapter 10, Exodus chapter 10, let's begin today's life service, if we may, in verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his hearts and the heart of his servants, that I might show these my signs before him, and that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and of thy son's son, what things I have wrought in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that ye may know how that I am the Lord. Go to First Corinthians chapter 1. So the Lord speaks to Moses. Moses speaks to Pharaoh. And this goes down as oral tradition. And then later on, this goes down into the word of God. First uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, to explain parts of what you've just looked at. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 22, please. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So first and foremost, the supernatural signs found over in Exodus 10, 1 and 2, are done for the Jews. Verse 22. And on top of that, how the Greeks, the Gentiles, the intellectuals seek after wisdom, philosophy. Like evolution, if you will. Like, if I can't sit, I won't believe it. But 23 is fascinating. But we, the body of Christ, but we, living under the gospel of the grace of God, preach Christ crucified. We don't go around laying our hands on people. We don't go around offering people healings. And this past week, I was in my local town And I saw a local charismatic church. And I've seen them many times on and off over the past decade. And they were at a very prominent spot in my local town. And they had this huge sign which says healing. And I watched them for no more than three or four minutes. And this guy was in a wheelchair. And he wheeled himself over to this group of charismatics. And I thought this would be very interesting. And I stood quite a way off, but I could see what was going on. And he was chatting to two or three of the elders from this charismatic church, and I've had conversations with this church on and off for the last decade or so, and of course nothing happens. And yet they are offering healings. Why not just preach Christ crucified, verse 23? Just preach the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if it pleases the Lord, he may perhaps heal you. And this guy, unsaved, was perhaps expecting a healing, because that's what they are in town for, to heal people, quote unquote. He would wheel himself over to them, and he would wheel himself away in disappointment. Unto the Jews, a stumbling block. The Jews don't like the idea of a crucified Messiah. The Jews don't like the idea of someone amongst their own brethren, going back to Deuteronomy 18, doing something for them. The Jews, concerning religious Jews, are self-righteous, like religious Muslims. And unto the Greeks, foolishness. But unto them which are called... That would be in reference to those that appropriate the atonement, both Jews and Greeks, Jew and Gentile. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Go back to the book of Exodus, please. So again, when you look at the book of Exodus, it's all about signs and wonders. Pre the book of Exodus, nobody was sick. Nobody was doing miracles. You've got progressive revelation until the Lord says to Moses, I am that I am. And on top of that, he would say, I am Jehovah. I am Yahweh. ten, one, and 2 again please. And the Lord, Elohim, Jehovah, said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, and the heart of his servants, a double hardening, that I might show these my signs before him. Pharaoh thought he was a big cheese. Pharaoh thought he was deity. Pharaoh thought his servants were also something special, and I've already shown you how the magicians were unable to reverse some of the miracles that Moses and Aaron would do, and that, the whole point of this is verse 2, and that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son, and of thy son's son, what things I have wrought in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that ye may know how that I am the Lord. It's all about glorifying the Lord time after time, The Lord Jesus Christ would do miracles like nobody else has ever done. He would far exceed Moses. He would say that he was Lord of the temple. He would say that he was Lord of the Sabbath. He would say that he was greater than Moses. In fact, that's found over in the book of Hebrews. Greater than Moses, greater than Solomon. And he would do miracles, first and foremost, to honor his father. Secondly, to affirm his credentials. And thirdly, to increase the faith of his apostles. And here, 10, 1 and 2 is the same sort of thing. And I will spend a few moments this morning showing you similarities between Moses and Messiah. Look at verse 3, if you will. And Moses Narin came in unto Pharaoh and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. So this is once again a reiteration concerning previous conversations. I think in total from memory, Moses will... Have 12 meetings with Pharaoh. And it's the same old thing. Let my people go. This is a commandment. And if you don't. Almighty God will break your country. And here Moses and Aaron are once again. In the presence of Pharaoh. And they are speaking on behalf of the Lord God. Of the Hebrews. Not the Lord God of the Catholics. Not the Lord God of the Calvinists. Not the Lord God of the Russian or Greek Orthodox Church. But the Lord God of the Hebrews. This is a Jewish book. If you are saved, if you are a Gentile, count your blessings. You are saved because the Jews rejected their Messiah. Acts chapter 7. They would reject their God back in First Samuel. Chapter 8. They would reject the Messiah. Matthew 27. So if you are saved, if you are a Gentile, count your blessings. Because as of right now, we are spiritual Israel. The church is in mystery form. 4. Else, if they refuse to so let my people go, behold, tomorrow... Will I bring the locusts into thy coast, and they shall cover the face of the earth, that one cannot be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, which remaineth unto you from the hail, and shall eat every tree which groweth for you out of the field. And they shall fill thy houses, and the houses of all thy servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither thy fathers nor their fathers' fathers have seen since the day that they were upon the earth unto this day. And he turned himself and went out from Pharaoh. Keep your hand there and go to John chapter 8. So I sat down last night and also this morning looking at this piece of scripture. And I saw something very interesting. A slight similarity, nothing significant, but a slight similarity between Moses and Messiah. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Look at verse 5 please. Now Moses in the Lord commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. And if you were to sit down with James White and ask him to exegete this to you, he'd say, Don't waste your time, buddy. He would say this isn't in the oldest manuscripts. He would say this wonderful account of the woman caught in the act of adultery, isn't in the oldest manuscripts, is spurious. And he would say that it shouldn't be in the King James Bible, because he is part of the Alexandrian school, going back to Egypt. And yet his Calvinist colleague, John MacArthur, says this is in the oldest manuscripts, and this is uh, correct, and this is part of the New Testament canon. Of course, there is a split in the Alexandrian cult, but if you are in the Antioch group, going back to Syria, you know that this is scripture, seven so when they continued asking him he lifted up himself and said unto them he that is without sin among you let him first cast a stone at her so if you think about what i've just shown you from verse six how moses turned himself turned himself and here eight six but jesus stooped down with his finger ropes on the ground as though he heard them not verse seven and when they continued asking him He lifted up himself, lifted up himself, he turned himself. May not be anything, but it was of interest to me. And said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now, in the context, this is adultery, literal adultery. This will feed into other parts of scripture like uh, Matthew uh, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Judge not, lest ye be judged. If you want to judge someone for something, make sure that number one, you're not guilty of the same thing. And number two, that you're not guilty of something similar. Jump over to verse 10. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemn thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more again. Jesus lifted up himself. When Moses turned himself. Moses is speaking to Pharaoh, Messiah. is speaking to the people of Israel. And there'll be many similarities as we work through the scripture. But verse 10 again, and I'll go back to the book of Exodus. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Go back to the book of Exodus. So James White would tell you that this isn't scripture. He would tell you, don't bother reading it. He would tell you that this isn't in the best manuscripts. He would tell you this is spurious. And as a result, you would miss out on a great blessing. You would miss out on the compassion of Christ. But the similarities concerning Moses and Messiah are many. Moses comes up against Pharaoh. Pilate comes up against Messiah. Many similarities which we will further discuss if time allows us for today. But from Exodus 10, 4, 5 and 6, you've got locusts. Now, over the last few uh, chapters, we've looked at lice, flies, locusts. A bit like sins. You start with a small sin, and they soon escalate to big sins. Locusts are going to cover the face of the earth, verse 5. If you don't release my people from verse 4, that one cannot be able to see the earth. There'll be so many lice, so many flies, and here, so many locusts that you won't be able to see your own hand. And they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped which remaineth unto you from the hail, and shall eat every tree which groweth for you out of the field. And they shall fill thy houses, and the houses of all thy servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither thy fathers nor their fathers' fathers have seen, since the day that they were upon the earth unto this day. And he turned himself, and went out from Pharaoh. So locusts, first and foremost, eat everything. And I spoke maybe a couple of years ago about robots, and I spoke about... Some of the inventions that the Chinese have been working on, the North Koreans, and also the Americans. And there's a robot that was made about two or three years ago, not just in America, but in North Korea. And I think also the Chinese have been working on this robot, and they've dubbed it Henry. And Henry the robot, if you don't know, is life-size. He's around six feet tall, weighs about probably 200 pounds, we would say probably 16 17 stone and henry the robot can walk like a man can run like a man can eat like a man now locusts from the book of exodus are literal winged creatures going back to lice and flies like beelzebub another term for the uh, for the devil so keep the locusts in mind keep literal locusts in mind But when we get to Revelation, in fact, go to Revelation now, Revelation chapter 9, locusts are referred to in a demonic sense. And therefore, if you think of what the North Koreans have been working on, and the Chinese, and also the Americans, they've got a robot called Henry. Now, Henry can walk, talk, and run. He can also eat people. And I've seen pictures on YouTube, and I've seen videos online over the last couple of years, of what the American uh, army have been working on. And they've got these robots which can run, can uh, skate on ice, will not fall over. You can kick these robots, they won't fall over. And they can move. You think a leopard can move. These things can really move. But the terrifying aspect of Henry, the Chinese slash North Korean robot, is that he will eat you. And what this thing does is it will be dispatched to... A neighborhood, perhaps a troubled neighborhood. Perhaps there are dissidents living there. People that are questioning the authority from Beijing and elsewhere. And this robot can climb over walls. This robot can kick doors in. This robot can come through the windows. And this robot can eat you. And I mean eat you. It can crunch up your bones. And within two or three minutes, five minutes, you are gone. No remains left. Revelation chapter 9. Let's see what John has to say about locusts. Revelation chapter 9, look at verse 1. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And they came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. And unto them were given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power." So let me ask you a quick question. If you're not a futurist, if you are a pre or if you are into amillennialism, or even post-millennialism, what do you do with this piece of scripture? If this hasn't happened, or if this has happened, when did this happen? I mean, tell me exactly, when did this happen? If you hold to the historical position, which most people do, when did this happen? Of course, if you are a futurist, like I am, this is still to take place. A uh, verse 4. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads, in reference to the 144,000. And again, if you hold to the historical view, when did this happen? Secondly, who were the 144,000 witnesses? Three, where is the third temple? And the fourth question, who are the two witnesses? In fact, I'll give you one more question. Question number five, who was the false prophet? And who was the Antichrist? There's no answer, of course, is there? There's no satisfactory answer. Unless you hold to futurism, which means this is about to occur in the future, going back to Midrash. What Moses would experience back in the day, thousands of years before the Lord Jesus Christ, concerning his clash with Pharaoh, is going to repeat itself again. And if Moses is one of the two witnesses working alongside Elijah, then it's Midrash. What takes place in the Old Testament will take place again in the New Testament. Here the 144,000 are safe. The scorpions, the locusts, verse 3, like Henry the robot, are probably demonic to some extent. Also perhaps inbred or have perhaps taken the bodies of literal locusts. You've got a mix between the natural and the supernatural. We don't quite understand it. Sometimes the natural and the supernatural are so closely together So closely together. That you can't quite make it out. Five. And to them it was given. That they should not kill them. But that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was. As the torment of a scorpion. When he striketh a man. So anybody outside. Of the 144,000. Are going to be. Tortured tormented. Like a cat with a mouse. If you will. And when a cat comes across a mouse or a cat comes across a bird it takes great pleasure in tormenting that defenseless creature and in those days verse six shall men seek death like suicide and shall not find it and shall desire to die and death shall flee from them i can't really imagine it you want to die the entire world is falling apart all around you and you can't even kill yourself you get a pack of paracetamol you go to the kitchen and the water doesn't come out And you got a whole pack of paracetamol, which will kill any man. And there's no water coming out of the tap. It's not going to help you, is it? Or you get a knife and you try and cut your wrist, and the knife is blunt. Or you try and throw yourself under a train, under a car, and there's no train. There's no car. No petrol. You're completely paralyzed. And you want to kill yourself a bit like hell. Look at verse 7. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses, prepared unto battle and on their heads were, as it were, crowned like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. Partly demonic, partly uh, human, a cross between animal and human, which has led to some suggesting that in the tribulation, or leading up to the tribulation, you're going to have half animal, half man, some kind of inbreed, a bit like David and Goliath. If you think of David and Goliath, if you think of Goliath, to be precise, nine foot tall, six fingers, weighed, 300 pounds or thereabouts, and some have suggested he was a demon. I'm not so sure about it. I would say that more likely he had a deficient gene, and because he was born as a result of incest, I think his father was also his brother, and his son was also his brother. You got three lines cursed, three uh, lines concerning Goliath, three demon possessed, to some extent, lines, but more correctly, a human being. A freak, if you will, going back to the uh, 20th century, if you went into a zoo or a travelling fair, you would see people that were very tall, people that looked unusual, and uh, people would pay good money to be entertained by very tall men, very small men, women with beards, people that looked somewhat strange, like a freak. But they were still humans. But they had a bad gene, if you will. There was some deficiency, something went wrong during birth for some of those people. Puberty never came. Uh, for some of those people, puberty, uh, puberty came late. And as a result, they are freakish, but they're still human. And here it's the same sort of thing. Eights, and they had hair as the hair of women. And their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots, of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions. And there were strings in their tails. And their power was to hurt men five months. So again, partly demonic. But also partly real from the animal world. 11. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon, meaning destroyer. And later on, when we get to, I think it's chapter 12 of the book of Exodus, the angel of the Lord is referred to as the destroyer. And most commentators have a very difficult time trying to work this out because. The angel of the Lord is a Christophany of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, and he's called the destroyer, and also Paul speaks about the destroyer, but here, the destroyer is referred to here as Abaddon and Apollyon. You've got two destroyers. You've got two Christs. Second Corinthians chapter 11 says two Christs, two spirits. You've got two churches. You've got the church of Hore, the whore, Revelation 17 and 18. You've got the church, the body of Christ. Many counterfeits, and here, this king over them is referred to as Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon, meaning death, meaning the destroyer. So the reason why I took you to Revelation 9, and go back to Exodus, is to show you that what takes place in the Old Testament is like stage 1. It's like a football match, and I've given the analogy many times over the years, a typical football match runs 90 minutes. The first half is 45 minutes, break. Second half, 45 minutes, completion. 2.45 minute segments completes a 90 minute game. That's what the Word of God is like. The Word of God is very similar to a football match. Old Testament, first half, New Testament, second half. But here, the locusts are going to eat everything. Now back in the day of Moses, they were literal winged creatures. And they were mobilized from the Lord to eat up everything like I say. Revelation 9, I'm going to repeat myself and suggest this again that robots are going to play a huge part during the Great Tribulation. The Word of God speaks about an army of 200 million. Now, as of right now, if you were to combine all of the armies of the world, you wouldn't get 200 million. You would struggle to get 100 million. But if demons are going to be deployed, if unclean spirits are going to be mobilized, if the supernatural is going to be quadrupled, going back to when the Messiah came, it seems like everybody was demon-possessed. He was going around laying hands on people, casting out demons and devils. Unlike that that fraudulent church in my town last week, they couldn't heal a dead horse. And he went around he went around healing people, he went around helping people, he gave sight to the blind, he gave hearing back to the deaf, he walked on the water, he fed thousands of people. And he was, he, he was healing people left, right and centre because the devils knew that the Messiah was on the face of the earth. So, let me say this and I will try and pull these verses together. Locusts eat everything. Robots, like Henry, is able to eat human beings. Also, be mindful of this, that during the time of Moses and Pharaoh, the locust was considered a god. The locust was considered deity. The Egyptians worshipped the locust. locusts. And therefore, for their own god, if you will, lowercase g, to turn on them, for their own god to eat their own crops, for their own god to turn on them, like Ra the sun god, we'll look at that later on, when you've got literal darkness for three days, is the Lord turning this wickedness on their own heads. Again, think of the account from John chapter 8. The Lord Jesus Christ is dealing with the Pharisees concerning physical adultery. Moses is dealing with spiritual adultery. Because although Pharaoh was a pagan, he was still made in the image of God, and he wasn't worshipping the, uh, the Lord in truth and spirit. He wasn't Praising the Lord like he should have done. He was an idolater. And that's why the Lord, through Moses, is clashing with Pharaoh. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ would clash with the apostates, unbelieving Jews found in the Gospel of John. But verse 6 from chapter 10, they shall fill thy houses and the houses of all thy servants. Going back to 10, 1 and 2, Almighty God won't just harden the hearts of Pharaoh. He will also harden the hearts of Pharaoh's servants. And when a nation is... Led by hardened hearts. There's no way back. Such a nation is heading for destruction. And the houses, verse 6 again, of all the Egyptians, which neither thy fathers nor their fathers' fathers have seen. Well, up until this time, they were worshipping locusts, like I say. They would pray to the God of the locusts to assist their harvest. Since a day that they were upon the earth unto this day. And he turned himself and went out from Pharaoh. What a message to deliver to Pharaoh. And yet time after time, Pharaoh is hearing the words from Moses. Time after time, the Jewish leaders were hearing the words from the Messiah. And Moses is speaking to Pharaoh. Messiah is speaking to Pilate. And Pilate, like Pharaoh, Pharaoh like Herod, is going to reject the words of the Lord. Because of course they know that to receive the words of the Lord is going to be their complete ruin. Going back to 1 Corinthians one twenty-two to 23. Verse 7, and our close. And Pharaoh's servants said unto him, How long shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed? Mein Fuhrer! Don't you know that Germany is destroyed? Don't you know that the Russians are 10 miles outside of Berlin? Don't you know that all of our men are dying on the Eastern Front? Don't you know that we are having to deploy children? 9 10 11 12 with pickaxes with shovels to fight the Russians don't you know that the Americans the Canadians the French and others are 20 miles outside of germany churchill and roosevelt and stalin have agreed to allow the russians to go into berlin first don't you know mind fewer that once uh, once they arrive they're going to rape all of our women don't you know that once they arrive there's no hope for us don't you know by 1946 over 2 million women are going to have abortions as a result of those Russian conscripts barging into Berlin and Britain under Churchill, Britain under Roosevelt, Britain under France and other countries, uh, to their shame, stood back and allowed the Russians to go into Berlin. And they had a time of it. It was bad enough that by 1946, the people of Germany were eating animals from the zoos. That was bad enough. But on top of that, these illiterate Russians were like I say, barging into Berlin, raping women. And by 1946, over one million abortions took place. Of course, not every woman would abort, would murder her baby, but many did. This is the same kind of thing. You've got Pharaoh, you've got his lieutenants, you've got his magicians, almost pleading with Pharaoh to have a wake up, to wake up, to smell the coffee. They know that it's all over. And yet Pharaoh, like Hitler... And other despots was on the verge of a breakdown. Going back to when Germany was almost, almost uh, at the gates of Moscow. And Stalin had a breakdown. Literal breakdown. For three days he locked himself away. Nobody could find him. Nobody could uh, speak to him. He was having a nervous breakdown. And Pharaoh's servant said unto him. How long shall this man be a snare unto us? Concerning Moses of course. Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Let the children of Israel out. Knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed? He didn't know it. He didn't know. And Hitler didn't know. Hitler gave orders to his uh, soldiers, his generals, in Paris. And he said, flatten Paris. Flatten France. He gave orders to his uh, generals in Italy. Flatten the Vatican. Arrest Pius XII. And his German officers, many Catholic, knew that the war was over didn't uh, honour the orders of Hitler, if you think of during the dark days of the Nixon uh, regime, he ordered uh, the American Air Force to drop the big one on uh, Vietnam, and Henry Kissinger, his uh, Secretary of State, countermanded Nixon's orders, and at the same time, there's a conversation recorded in the famous Nixon movie, and I don't know if it's true or not, but this is a very interesting conversation, and Nixon... Knows that his days are numbered. He knows that he's about to be impeached. And he says to uh, Kissinger, What would happen, Henry, if I was to call in the Marines? Would they come to the White House? Would they ring the White House? Would they protect me from the FBI? And there's a moment of silence. There's a look of horror on uh, Kissinger's face when he realises what is being asked of him. And he said to Nixon, Yes, they would honour you, because you are their commander-in-chief. And for a few minutes... Nixon was seriously considering calling on the Marines stationed outside of Washington, D.C. to ring the White House to keep him in office, to protect him from the FBI. Of course, that wouldn't happen. He would be pardoned as a result of a deal made with uh, Gerald Ford, a 33-degree Freemason. And Ford would protect uh, Nixon, and he was able to escape. But no deal was done for Hitler. No deal was done for Stalin. And no deal will be done for Pharaoh, either. This is the beginning of the end of Pharaoh. And like I say, Pharaoh was in a world of his own. Pharaoh was psychotic, probably demon-possessed. His whole world is about to collapse. Like the Russian Tsars, he thought he would live on for a 1,000 years. Hitler thought he would rule for 1,000 years. In total, he would rule just 13 years. And the, uh, the Russian Tsar, Tsar Nicholas and co, have been ruling Russia for over 500 years. And the Bolshevich arrived under people like Lenin, brutal bandits would murder the Russian Tsar and his family, would rape his daughters and by 1917 it's all over. No more Romanovs, no more Tsar, it's going to be all downhill from 1917 right up until 1989 when the Berlin Wall goes down. So what you are seeing is a collapse of a very civilised country, yes a very wicked, immoral, idolatrous country. But like Germany, the most advanced country up until 1945 will collapse from within Germany. Not just Germany, but also Japan. The deal was at the end of World War II that the Emperor would survive, and it was MacArthur who said give me Bibles, Bibles, Bibles. Give me Bibles to transform uh, Japan. And to the shame of MacArthur and the then leader of America, uh, Truman, they allowed the Uh, Japanese Emperor to remain in power. He was responsible for the death of many, many people. And we have friends that lived in uh, China when the Japanese arrived. And they're very brutal. And our friends know who I'm referring to. And when they arrived in China, 1940 onwards, it was pretty brutal. And some of those people had to get out of China and move to country in Southeast Asia because they knew that time was up. So what you've seen is Pharaoh's world collapsing. If you want to contrast that with history, look at Hitler, look at Stalin, look at the Romanovs to some extent, look at the Russians, look at the Japanese. And these countries, these emperors, these dynasties were coming to an end and for some of those people it would never be the same again. Exodus chapter 10, Exodus chapter 10 and last week we were able to cover the first seven verses and I'm very touched with verse 2 how the Lord makes it very clear how he is I am the Lord how he is the eternal God has no beginning has no end he is simply I am and that's something which you can take to the bank he doesn't change you might change I might change the body of Christ might change but he doesn't change so just to very quickly recap, we've been reading about Moses and Pharaoh conversing in Egyptian, and there's two parts to this conversation. Number one, Almighty God wants the Jews out, he wants his people out. And also number two, he shouldn't overlook the fact that he wanted Pharaoh to be saved. The Word of God says how he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and how he is willing uh, for all to repent. He doesn't want people to go to hell. Of course, you will send yourself to hell if you uh, pass up the Lord's offer of everlasting life. But so far, it's about Moses. So far, it is about Pharaoh. And the Lord is speaking through Moses, if you will. This is a very common Old Testament theme. It's very, very rare for the Lord to just appear, whether Old Testament or New Testament, and speak to a particular person. He would normally speak through third parties. And therefore, last week, like I say, we were able to cover the first seven verses. And I'm going to read seven again. And Pharaoh's servants, Pharaoh's lieutenants, Pharaoh's magis, Pharaoh's religious fathers, said unto him, How long shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Not yet their God, in reference to the Egyptians, but in reference to the Hebrews. And if you meet people on the street and you try and witness to them, they say, well, if that's what works for you, I'm happy for you, of a very condescending, arrogant attitude. And we try and switch that to, but he's your God as well. You need to receive him as well. Because one day you will die and you will be judged. Colon, knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed? Well, of course, he didn't know. He was a narcissist. He thought he was the biggest thing since sliced bread. And he was. He was a very powerful man. I can't reiterate that enough he was a very powerful man he was a superstitious man and i gave you the uh, scripture from john 8 last week when the lord dealt with literal adultery and here he's dealing with spiritual adultery he thought he was something special he thought he was deity and for the first time in his entire life somebody has challenged him going back to when we do street work we speak to people and i'm convinced that nine times out of ten those people that we speak to have never been spoken to in that way before have never been challenged In that way, before. And I can see people's expressions as the penny starts to drop and they are trying to work out what they are hearing from us. And the initial reaction would be, well, that's your opinion, or they make fun of it, or they mock it. But how about when they go home? How about when they're on their own and they start to think? But look at verse 8, if you will. And Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh, and he said unto them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But who are they that shall The Lord your God, the Lord my God, the Lord our God. And yet he's not your God, he's not my God, he's not our God, until we personally receive him. And here this is very interesting because Pharaoh refers to the Lord as Jehovah. That's a sacred name. You won't find many Jews that call God Jehovah. Most Jews, even secular Jews, liberal Jews, still choose their words very carefully when it comes to describing almighty God. Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh, introduced or invited into his inner circle or his proximity, his throne room. And he said unto them, go serve the Lord your God, but who are they that shall go? He's almost bartering. He's almost negotiating with them. As they say, he allowed such and such to take place through gritted teeth. Or you had to literally uh, drag it out of him. That kind of expression denoting what Pharaoh is asking from Moses and Aaron. 9. And Moses said, We will go with our young and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds will we go, for we must hold a feast unto the Lord. Very clear. Young, old, herds, flocks, everyone and anything. In other words, this will be a major clear out. And that's why this book is called The Exodus. A major departure. And the latter part of verse 9. For we must hold a feast unto the Lord. So for today we would say this. That every Sunday Bible believing Christians around the world. When they are able to or meet. To hear the word of God uh, being read, expounded have corporate prayer and when the service concludes break bread most churches most bible believers will do that at least once a week i know there are some churches that break bread once a month there are some churches that break bread twice a year very bizarrely but most conservative bible believing christians or fellowships or groups within groups will break bread every sunday and if you want to know what a church constitutes just two or three people just two or three people of course if you can increase that figure to maybe 300 people why not go for it but the lord will accept just two or three and yet if you go back to the first century if you go back to before the first century go back maybe 100 or 200 years before christ came right up until the temple's destruction a typical synagogue uh, for memory had to be run or organized controlled by around 12 men i think it's 12 for memory that was a legal constituted, a legal, a legally recognized synagogue, 12, or thereabouts. The Lord said, no, I will lower that to two or three, because he knew that one day Bible believers would be a minority of minorities. He knew that one day it wouldn't be possible for Christians to meet in large numbers, like North Korea, like China, like even Saudi Arabia. And therefore he said, well, if you meet in fewer numbers, you'll be more conspicuous, you'll be able to blend in. Uh, people won't notice a herd of people uh, heading into a church building every week. But if two or three people can meet in a home or a coffee bar or even in a car, I will recognize it, providing, of course, as such are saved. Look at verse 10. And he said unto them, Let the Lord be so with you, as I will let you go and your little ones. Look to it, for evil is before you. Much truth in that. Much truth in that. Yes, there will be evil before them. By the time Moses, Aaron, and Miriam would get through, two out of the three would be dead. By the time the chosen race would arrive in the promised land, most of that generation were dead, apart from Joshua and Caleb and a few others. And here it's almost similar to John 11, I think it is, when Caiaphas prophesizes, and it says in brackets, he did so because he was the high priest that year. He wasn't aware of it. And back in John 11... He is prophesying about the Messiah coming and dying for the sins of the world. Daniel chapter 9, he would be cut off, but not for himself. And here, it's the same sort of a thing in a roundabout way. It's almost as if the Lord is speaking through Pharaoh. And yes, he would speak through unsaved people. He would speak through saved people, obviously. Caiaphas was unsaved, and the Lord spoke through him, John 11. And here, it's very reminiscent. Look to it, for evil is before you. And he said unto them, let the Lord be so with you. That's an interesting statement. Let the Lord, let Jehovah, that sacred name again. Let Yahweh be so with you. And we say, the Lord be with you. Or we say, God bless you. Look at it again. And he, Pharaoh, said unto them, Moses and Aaron, let the Lord be so with you. And yet, of course, there's a sarcastic tone to this. As I will let you go and your little ones He is reluctantly agreeing to this, look to it, in other words, look out, check the coast is clear, for evil is before you. So, number one, there is a sarcastic tone, number two, the Lord is perhaps speaking through Pharaoh in a loose sort of a way, and number three, he wants to put the fear into man. Fear will kill you, fear will cripple you, fear will hold you back. Some people say that fear is a good thing, some people say that fear keeps you alive. I'm not overly sure about that. Too much fear will paralyze you. People are very fearful as to what others think about them. People are very fearful as to what uh, may or may not happen if you make a a particular decision. Many times people don't do anything in the end because they are terrified about what others are going to think, say and do. Look at verse 11, please. Not so. Go now ye that are men and serve the Lord. For that ye did desire. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh, like I say, is a narcissist. Pharaoh is a bit like Henry VIII. A very troubled character. A very complex character. And we use that term often. We say he's a very complex person. Or she's a very complex person. And most of us are complex. Uh, I was able to profile uh, Judas Iscariot during our Scotland outreach. And that uh, message ran to four and a half hours. And I'll be honest with you, we just scratched the surface. We just scratched the surface when it came to profiling Judas Iscariot. And here, they have been driven out from Pharaoh's presence. He, of course, is infuriated. He feels humiliated. He doesn't like the idea of these two shepherds breathing into his palace, like I say, and reading the right act to him. He doesn't care for that. When people walked into his presence, they went down on their knees. If you met Oliver Cromwell, you had to bow three times. Up until 1996, 1997, if you were in the presence of the Queen of England, you had to walk backwards. Not 100 years ago, less than 25 years ago. And every time Parliament reopens, the Queen is summoned from Buckingham Palace, and she goes from Buckingham Palace to the House of Lords, and it's quite a ceremony to behold. And when she gets to the House of Lords... The head of the lords, who represents the government, will walk towards her, give her the government uh, business for the forthcoming cabinet. And up until, up until 1995, 1996, once he had presented such a document to her, he had to walk backwards, very carefully. He couldn't turn his back on her, you see. Now, of course, that has been changed. You can turn your back on her and walk away. But up until recently, people that met the Queen especially uh, during the opening of Parliament, to be more precise, had to walk straight towards her, and then walk backwards. Couldn't turn your back on her. Similar sort of thing from verse 11. But look at verse 12. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up upon the land of Egypt, and eat every herb of the land, even all that the hail hath left. So we said this last week, that locusts were considered to be deity they were considered to be holy and sacred very reminiscent to the hindus belief and that's why they won't or they're very careful what they eat as are the buddhists we spoke about henry the robot last week a very uh, devious invention uh being let loose on dissidents or enemies of the state quote unquote and such a robot will eat you and i was sent an email this week asking me if I thought that the locusts are helicopters. I don't believe that. I don't believe that the locusts are helicopters. It is true that the world of aviation has changed considerably in the last 25 years. In fact, this past week, four RAF planes built in America have flown from South Carolina to Marnham, which is near Norfolk, and they say that those Royal Air Force planes, they cost over 100 million pounds each, are the most sophisticated planes in the world. They are invisible on radar, and Britain has ordered, I think, 150 of those planes to take off from the new aircraft carriers and they'll be used by the Royal Air Force. And people, you know, just 25, 30 years ago would have thought that was impossible. I think when the Americans first built the B 2 bomber, Back in the 1980s, early 90s, that was considered to be something really spectacular. I mean, how can a plane fly 8,000 miles and be invisible on the radar? But it was, and it still is. And that plane, just a quick footnote, was shot down over Yugoslavia during the uh, Balkans War on the orders of uh, Milosevic. And what was reported at the time, I'll get back to this in a minute, was that there was a mole, there was a French mole in NATO, And that French mole tipped off the uh, Serbs, and they were able to shoot down that American B-2 bomber, which around the time cost half a billion dollars. It was sent to Moscow, stripped down, and of course the Russians were able to really get underneath the bonnet, or the hood, as Americans call it, to work out what that flying bird, as it is referred to, how it worked, how it functioned. If you think about the other plane that that was shot down over the China Sea around 15 years ago, and that spy plane was shot down by the Chinese, it landed, it was forced down, and the Chinese arrested 12 American Air Force uh, airmen, as they are referred to, and they were held for eight days, nine days, that was humiliating. And George Bush was the president at the time, and the Chinese put these men, and I think maybe a couple of women, on Chinese television television, And they said they were spies, they were this, they were that. And it was touch and go for a period of time. A bit like when the Royal Navy lost their seamen uh, to the Iranians about 10 years ago. But to cut a long story short, the American crew were released, obviously. And uh, the British seamen were released, obviously. But that ship, excuse me, but that plane, that plane that was forced down in China remained in China. And of course, the Chinese stripped that plane down, went through it very thoroughly like the Russians did with the B-2 bomber, and they got the coordinates and they were able to rebuild both of those American spy planes. Well, that gives you some idea as to how far we have come when it uh, it comes to technology, stealth planes, stealth ships. And now Britain's got four stealth fighter jets, and there are over 130 still to come. But when it comes to locusts, verse 12, I don't believe that they are in reference to helicopters. Now, you could have a cross between something demonic and something human. I won't go beyond that. Look at verse 12 again. And the Lord, Jehovah, said unto Moses, probably in Hebrew, stretch out thine hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts. That's real power. Never mind Pharaoh, never mind the Singapore summit this week. That's real power that they may come up upon the land of Egypt. It's almost like he's it up, uh, he's calling up the dead, and eats every herb of the land, even all that the hail hath left. In a sense, it's similar to John 11, when the Lord said to Lazarus, come forth, but before he said come forth, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And that is real power. But here, Moses, agent of the Lord, is controlling the animal world. In a sense, similar to Adam, who would name the animals, of course. Thirteen. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt. And the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. This is very reminiscent to the great exodus, chapter 15. You've got, I think from memory, 1.6 million Jewish men, women, animals and also that mixed multitude fleeing from Pharaoh, they go through the Red Sea the Lord opens that thing up and i got the figures somewhere but I think from memory according to one Russian mathematician, he said it took 12 and a half hours for 1.6 million people to go through the Red Sea again, that is real power never mind these stealth jets never mind these summits never mind this or that when it comes to having control over good old mother nature. That's real power. 14. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt, and rested in all the coasts of Egypt. Very grievous were they. Before them there was no such locusts as they, neither after them shall be such. So the Lord takes these locusts, these disgusting creatures, which even today can really cripple a country. I remember seeing some footage on YouTube about three or four years ago when locusts uh, were seen uh, destroying crops in Israel. And people were saying then, this is very reminiscent to chapter 10. But again, the Lord is using locusts for a reason. He's taken these superstitious idols, these false gods, and he's he's literally put them on their heads, a bit like Dagon, a bit like the Ark of the Covenant when the philistines confiscate the ark of the covenants and it's put side by side with Dagon the fish god and it says the following day how when they found Dagon their beloved god it was back to front and the next day it was face down and the next day its hands and feet were crippled were literally destroyed and of course you know what that uh, is picturing it's picturing victory over Dagon another term for the devil and eventually, the Philistines were very upset about it. They saw their God was very weak, impotent. And on top of that, they started to experience a uh, bubonic plague. And the Lord was really hitting the Philistines hard. So much so that they panicked and decided to put the Ark of the Covenants on a horse and cart. And it was sent down the road. And it would arrive in somebody's home whose name escapes me. And when it was told David what had taken place, he was greatly pleased because that... Uh, certain character's name escapes me was blessed because he was able to if you will take care of the ark of the covenant so this is really going back to the ancient world this is going back to who calls the shots. this is going back to i am that i am or before abraham was i am that's real power and here the lord through moses like i say is working through the animal kingdom but here specifically locusts 15 for they cover the face of the whole earth So that the land was darkened, and they did eat every herb of the land, and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. And there remained not any green thing in the trees, or in the herbs of the field, through the land of Egypt. Absolute annihilation. If you can picture, or if you've seen any aerial shots of Germany, 1946, it is just obliterated. Frankfurt, Berlin, Bonn, Stuttgart, the entire country. Hamburg, is just rubble. And, I mean, when the, ally, when the Allies uh, bombed Germany, at night time it fell to the Brits, and daytime it fell to the Americans. They just flattened that country. And when you flew over Germany in 46, it was like something out of a third world scene. It was just desolation. And here it says how they covered the face of the whole earth. Not just Egypt, but the whole earth. But in the context, Egypt, so that the land was darkened. Underline that in your Bibles. And they did eat every herb of the land, and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. And there remained not any green thing in the trees, or in the herbs of the field, through the land of Egypt. So you know if you eliminate greenery, like trees, or what you eat, like spinach, or something nutritious, you know that within five minutes, the entire country is going to be in an absolute uh, crisis. Keep your hand there and go to uh, Revelation chapter 6. So again, what you read about in the Old Testament, nine times out of ten is going to be repeated. Uh, It's like a remake. It's like if you've watched an old movie and then some years later they do a sequel. It could be Top Gun, made back in the 1980s, and now next year they're going to do a remake with the same crew uh, or Alien. Made back in the 1970s, they did two, three parts to that. Um, Or anything that you can think of, they try and redo it. And they try and uh, build on it. Or maybe back to the future. They did, I think, three or four of those movies. And here, Revelation chapter 6 is very similar to Exodus uh, chapter 10. Uh, Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6, look at verse 12. And I beheld, when he had opened the sixth seal... And lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. Sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. Pitch black. Terrifying. If you think of being in a situation when when the lights go out, that's pretty frightening. Imagine being at uh, 30,000 feet on a plane, or imagine being on the underground in London, and the lights go out, imagine, imagine being in an elevator, and the lights go out, and I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell onto the earth, so, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken, Of a mighty wind. Now, like I said last Sunday, this can only be interpreted if you are a futurist. If you're not a futurist, this isn't for you. If you're not a futurist, this, this, this means nothing to you. Because you can't exegete this. 13 again. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll, when it is rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens, and in the rocks of the mountains. And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on a throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Go back to chapter 10, the book of Exodus. So, what you're reading about from Exodus this morning is going to... Reoccur again during the Great Tribulation. Moses was very active, shall we say, back in the book of Exodus. Obviously, he's up against Pharaoh. He will be probably used as one of the two witnesses to take on the Antichrist. Moses, Elijah. Moses, Aaron. Moses, Aaron, Pharaoh. Moses, Elijah, Antichrist. Moses, Aaron, Jesus, John. Moses, Aaron, Peter, and Paul. Moses, Aaron. James and John, 16. Then Pharaoh called for Moses now in haste, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. This is very reminiscent to what Judas would say. I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. Couldn't be said about you and I. We're not innocent, never have been, never will be. But Judas made the case for Christ in that he was guilty of betraying the innocent blood. Pharaoh called for Moses now in in haste. He's desperate, almost. And he said, in Egyptian, I have sinned against the Lord your God, not my God. He still won't bend the knee. He is aware that the Lord is the Lord of the Jews, the Hebrews. Going back to last week, uh, the Lord of the Hebrews. For today, Lord of the Church. But he won't bend the knee yet. I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. I have sinned. So Balaam would say the same. He would say, I have sinned. Judas would say the same. I have sinned. King Saul would say the same. I have sinned. And like I say, even priests would hear Judas's worthless confession. But real repentance, a real act of contrition, uh, would be found from people such as Job, Peter, and Isaiah. So therefore, as far as I am concerned, Pharaoh was simply sorry uh, for... What was about to take place, like the loss of his sphere, not soul. Going back to uh, chapter 9 uh, 27, in fact, I'm going to read it again 9:27. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said unto them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. Well, he was right. He was wicked. His people were wicked. He had sinned. But again, he's sorry for if you were being caught, like Judas was sorry for. Uh, not being victorious. Real repentance, just for the record, is to be sorry for who you are and what you are. It's not just, when I'm sorry, Lord, for being caught with my hands in the till, sticky fingers, or I'm sorry for this, or I'm sorry for that. No, real repentance is to be sorry for who you are and what you are. And here, what he's saying is partly correct, but there's no real follow-up, if you will. In a sense, he's simply telling Moses and Aaron what they want to hear. 17. Now therefore forgive, I pray thee, my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord your God, that he may take away from me this death only. So now he's, in a sense, bartering, like I say, from uh, verse 8. He's now negotiating, in a sense, from verse 8. But here, Pharaoh, a very strange man, Knows that it's all up, going back to uh, verse uh, 7. And yet we could say he was in denial. He was biding his time. If you go back to 1944, 1945, they knew that the war was over, uh, in reference to the Germans. And they said to Hitler, it's all over. And uh, he said, no, we have some mystical uh, weapon being built, the V2 rockets they're working on. And the V-2 rockets were awful inventions. They would fly from Germany and also from France. They would fly over Britain, cut out and just crash. And you could hear those things coming and you couldn't run uh, quick enough to get away from the V-2 rockets. And those things would just be dropping out of the sky like dead flies. And Hitler really believed that they had other great inventions up his sleeve. And his generals were saying to him, but it's all over. We've lost six million men. We've lost in Russia... We've lost in uh, France. The Allies have landed. They pushed uh, the Germans right the way back into parts of Holland and uh, other parts of Europe. And they are maybe two or three weeks away from arriving in Berlin. And Hitler, a bit like uh, Pharaoh, was in denial. And he started to fire his top generals. But it was too late. The war was over. And here, it's too late for Pharaoh. And yet again, forgive me... I pray thee, my sin only this once, (laughs) and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. He's almost thinking of himself, like most despots, like Papa Doc. He's thinking about himself. He's thinking about how can I get out of this situation? Can I find a safe passage out of my country? Could you smuggle me out on a submarine? Of course, such didn't exist back in the day, but that's almost what's going through his mind. 18. And he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. So time after time, Moses would entreat the Lord. He would intercede. He would plead with the Lord. He would do so later on when idolatry uh, sprang up in the camps of Israel. they different camps. They would travel. They would stop. They would get their tabernacles out. They would take time out, if you will. And there were several occasions of idolatry breaking out and... Moses would uh, rip his shirts, his clothing, a picture of grief, as would Aaron. It's also um, worth reminding ourselves about Phineas, the son of Aaron. He would uh, take a spear, a javelin, and find somebody who'd been guilty of idolatry and throw that spear through such a person's heart. And it says over in the book of Psalms how the Lord stayed the plague due to that man's interceding or intercession Due to that man uh, dealing with the issue at hand, the Lord would honor uh, the involvement, the intercession. Going back to the fact, time after time in the Old Testament, how the Lord spoke through people. He would speak through Abraham, he would speak through Moses, and he would certainly speak through all of the kings in Israel. Verse 19, and I'll close. And the Lord turned a mighty strong west wind, which took away the locusts and cast them into the Red Sea, there remain, not one locust, nor the coasts of Egypt. So the Lord, first and foremost, takes this locust, which, like I say, was sacred, quote-unquote. He turns it on its head like Dagon, the god. He allows it to run wild. He allows it to terrify the Egyptians because they worship such a creature. And when it pleases the Lord, he takes the problem which he has partly created. It says over in Isaiah 45 how he creates evil. He creates light, he creates darkness. And that's something which Calvinists could never really get their head around. And therefore he takes a negative and when it pleases him, turns it into a positive. And the Lord Jehovah turned a mighty strong west wind which took away the locusts and cast them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the coasts of Egypt. And they probably thought Christmas had come early. They're probably dancing in the streets of uh, Cairo and Alexandria, thinking that we have won, that somehow Ra, their uh, sun God, and we get to him next Sunday, has saved the day. But of course, it wasn't Ra, it was Jehovah. And like every story in the Old Testament, the Lord will deal with wickedness, unsaved people. He'll deal with the good and the great, And many times, he will take their own idols and use them against them. So by the grace of God, we've been able to I uh, go from verses 8 to 19, and on average, uh, it's taken me probably three Sundays to work through every chapter. And there's no rush. There's no rush when it comes to looking at the book of Exodus, my second favorite Old Testament book. And just for the record, these are real stories. Don't you dare spiritualize this. Don't you dare figuratize this. Don't you dare approach this like most. Unsaved reprobates do and say they are just fables written by ignorant uh, shepherds. That is blasphemy. These are real stories. These are real accounts. In fact, just this morning I saw an article in one of the British newspapers of a statue that they found of a king or somebody very important from 3,000 years ago. A very uh, detailed find. And this king has a beard, has rather short hair, and this has been found and handed over to a museum in Israel and one of the Israeli uh, archaeologists isn't isn't uh, particularly sure as to who this king uh, this king could be unlikely to be one of the jewish kings but it could be somebody like darius for example or more likely somebody less well known but still important enough to have an effigy or an image to represent such a person which goes to uh, underscore once again that this book is not only true because of the prophecies but this book is true based on archaeology the digs the finds and money coins that have been found going right back until well the red sea i mean if you think of the account concerning the red sea uh around 15 years ago they found the chariots they found the chariots near egypt and i'll get the specific uh geographical location in a few weeks' time, when we get to chapter 15, but they actually found the remains of the chariots. And if you go to Egypt, if you go to the uh, Cairo Museum, and I was there back in 2005, from memory, there were 15 pharaohs. I think 15 pharaohs from memory. A bit like 15 Roman emperors. Interesting figure. And out of those 15 pharaohs, if you go to the museum in Cairo today, they've only got 14. And I remember saying to one of the tour guides, where's number 15? If number 15 was Ramesses Second, my Bible says he was drowned in the Red Sea. Hence why you don't have his remains in your museum today. And she was a Muslim. And of course, they don't like the Bible particularly. They say it's being corrupted. But the point was this. Out of 15 pharaohs, from beginning to end, if you go to Cairo, they've only got 14. Or so they say. The remains are just 14. And of course, number 15 is missing. And if that is the case, then that has to be, I will suggest, Ramesses II. So my point is this. This is a reliable historical book. These are real miracles. Moses was a real man. Aaron was a real man. Pharaoh was a real man. Jesus was a real man. John the Baptist was a real man. Peter, Paul, James and John were real men. The Antichrist, the false prophet, the two witnesses, the 144,000 are real people. The third temple is a real building. This isn't some fictitious makeup sort of cartoon situation this is a real story about real people and unfortunately people like the jason scholars people like the jesuits people like westcott and hort and other dangerous devils over the last 200 years or so have just destroyed the faith of so many people going back to james white saying that john 8 concerning the woman caught in adultery isn't scriptural shouldn't be read and if it's in your bible just mark it out he's a liar and because he's a liar, he has, can I suggest, taken hope from people, people that are trapped in sexual sins. And they go to John 8, and they see how compassionate Christ was. And he's, he, you know, he would say to the woman, uh, or he would say to those, he that, is, he that is least, or he that hasn't sinned, excuse me, he that hasn't sinned, let him cast a stone at her. And of course, they all start to get convicted. And one by one, they all start to back out. That's a famous scripture. He that is without sin, let him cast a stone at her. And of course, nobody could cast a stone at her because they're all guilty. Not particularly that sin, but other sins like greed, envy, uh, hatred, bitterness, uh, obesity, uh, selfishness, lack of forgiveness. You know what the Word of God says? It says if you break one of the commandments, you've broken all of the commandments. So please, if you are new to these studies, if you are new to the Word of God, if you are Joining me every uh, Lord's Day morning, and you're not sure about these miracles, they are real. And they will be repeated in a similar sense during the Great Tribulation. But by the grace of God, the body of Christ, the church, won't be here. But many more will. So you better look out. So we are working our way through the book of Exodus, the 10th chapter. And of course, the number 10 is the Gentile number. Pharaoh was a Gentile, and the Lord Through foreknowledge, knew which way Pharaoh would go, and he knows through foreknowledge which way anybody will go, whether saved or unsaved. And whatever we do concerning any given situation, the consequences will obviously vary. That's how foreknowledge works, just for the record. Foreknowledge is simply the Lord looks down through history and he sees how person A, B and C is going to respond or handle any given situation. And of course he knew which way Pharaoh would go So on the one hand, we shouldn't be sorry for him, or we shouldn't feel sorry for him. He had free will. He could have gone one of two ways. He could have repented. He could have believed. It says over in one of the Pauline epistles how uh, people from the household of Caesar were saved. So it was possible. It was possible for many of the infamous tyrants throughout the Old Testament and the New and throughout history to have been saved. But due to Foreknowledge, the Lord knew that they would not be saved, and due to free will, they decided not to be saved. Exodus chapter 10, Exodus chapter 10, look at verse 20, please. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go. You've got around eight occasions, especially from the book of Romans, if you want to cross-reference this, where it says how the Lord would harden the heart of Pharaoh at the same time pharaoh would also harden his own heart so again you've got two things going on you've got pharaoh enjoying free will deciding to remain a pagan a wicked infidel if you will and as a result of that through foreknowledge he remains in his sin he dies in his sin and here as i say got two things going on you've got the lord hardening pharaoh's heart and you've got pharaoh hardening his own heart That goes back to Romans chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks about Almighty God giving people up to their own vile affections. And that of course is also cross-referenced to Romans chapter 1. So again, when man turns from the Lord, the Lord turns from man. When Pharaoh turned from the Lord, the Lord turned from Pharaoh. When man hardens his heart, Romans chapter 1, or here, concerning Pharaoh, Almighty God, Ephesians chapter 4 hardens the hearts of such a person. And when that happens, as far as I'm aware and concerned, there's no going back. But look at verse 21, if you will. And the Lord said unto Moses, stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. People say this, they say, I walked into the room and the atmosphere was so thick you could cut it with a knife. Or they say this, they say, uh, if looks could kill. So here, the term darkness, which may be felt, is picturing absolute bleakness, absolute desperation. Keep your hand there and go to Hebrews chapter 12. So yes, on the one hand, it's figurative language. And yet, on the other hand, there's no reason to not take it literally. Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse, verse 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, concerning his privilege, not salvation. Just keep that in mind. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance though he sought it carefully with tears. So in the context, Esau, being a profane, immoral person, would discard his birthright, his inheritance. We discussed this some weeks ago, going back to our millennial inheritance. And here, Esau, when he realized what he had turned down, a bit like an unsaved man in hell, he wanted a second chance. Of course, there is no second chance. The Mormons believe in uh, proxy baptism, and they believe that if a person dies outside Of the LDS religion. Upon death they get a second chance. And they believe that such will be enough for them. And what they say is this. Well we will baptise people now. And they were going through the phone books. Many years ago. And doing proxy baptisms. It was even said that they baptised Hitler. Because they thought that it would allow him into heaven. Of course there's no second chance. But keep that in mind. Look at verse 18. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight, that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake, but ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Go back to the book of Exodus. Heaven or hell, saved or unsaved. If you want to have the blackness or darkness forever, If you want to be a wandering star, if you want to be suffering eternal damnation and shame, just stay as you are. Don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep doing religion. Do your own thing. It's all relative. It's all the same anyway, or so most people would have you believe. But if you want to be saved, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So here, 10, 21 again. The Lord said unto Moses, stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. I guess if you were to go back to the old black and white movies, and I'm a bit of a fan of the old black and white movies, you think of the old Sherlock Holmes movies, and of course they were made in America during the 30s and 40s, but they were set in London around the time of the Victorian era. And during the time of the Victorian era, right up until I think 1950, London had a huge problem, awful problem of pollution, smog. And it was so bad that people were dying, a bit like they are in Beijing at the moment. And the governments, around 1950, 51, brought in the Clean Air Act. And the Clean Air Act was just what it says. It was simply to clean up the air, because the air was filthy. But go back to the 30s, the 40s, it was really thick. You could walk down the street, and you couldn't see somebody 5, 10 yards ahead of you. That's how bad it was. But here, I'm thinking about the Egyptians about to experience judgment, awful judgment, which we don't really understand, we don't want to inflict on our worst enemies. On top of that, they're going to feel it. They're going to taste it. A bit like Lazarus, Luke 16, he's in a literal place. He's in a literal flame. He can feel, he can see, he can express his emotions. He's in a pretty bad way. And he's pleading with Abraham, and he is very conscious. Now, of course, that is the first death, not the second death. And people get confused Many times when they try and understand the first and the second death, people get confused with the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment. They're not the same. When we get saved, we are in the kingdom of God, in a spiritual sense. When the Lord returns, we will be with him, and we will be in the literal everlasting kingdom of heaven, which of course starts for the 1,000-year period. Look at 22. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt, three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. When Christ hung on the cross from beginning to end, it would last six hours. And for memory, I think Mark's gospel says it was dark for around three hours. So the last parts of the six hours, it's absolute darkness which, if you will, is a picture of the tribulation, pre roth post roth But for three hours, there's darkness, literal darkness. And that wasn't just observed in and around Jerusalem. It was also observed in Italy. And there was a Roman historian, an Italian historian, whose name escapes me, who made the case that it was a complete eclipse. So you've got Christ in Jerusalem hanging on a cross, literal darkness and also you've got figurative darkness because the religious leaders were going around blaspheming him saying if he really is a son of god come down from the cross save himself and us that's mockery that's spiritual and darkness but you've also got literal darkness pitch black and yet even though there's pitch black absolute darkness all around the cross of christ you've got john representing the church you've got his mother and a group of others representing the true believing remnant they went in darkness they were basking in the glory of the ray of the lord jesus christ go to first thessalonians chapter five so physical darkness spiritual darkness before the apostle paul was saved he was spiritually depraved he was a real zealot he was a hothead he was going around killing people he was going around uh, getting people to blaspheme almighty god and then one day the lord took that man knocked him off his horse literally put him flat on his face literally and a light shone from heaven and he was able to respond to that light that's a good pitch of repentance on your face you won't come to the lord unless you are broken you won't come to him unless you want to be made alive and yet going back to esau a somewhat immoral profane fornicator and of course in the context it's spiritual fornication not literal fornication yes he wasn't uh, the best of the best from the Old Testament, but he was a spiritual fornicator, a spiritual adulterer. He turned his back on the blessing, sold it to Jacob, the old schemer. So Paul the apostle is knocked off his horse. He's literally blind uh, for three days. The Lord speaks to one of the leaders of the early church, Ananias, I think it was from memory. Puts his hands on him, brother Saul, receive thy sight. He's now. Able to see physically and also spiritually. This is a new birth. Until you are born again, this book is closed to you. Until you are saved, you have no interest in the word of God. But First Thessalonians chapter 5 harmonizes quite nicely with this. Uh, look at verse 1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. You have no need that I write unto you. The Lord Jesus Christ would say that only the Father would have knowledge of the uh, the exact moments of the second advent because at that moment christ had emptied himself of his deity he was in submission uh, to his father and he was receiving if you will progressive revelation a bit like moses would back in the old testament so when he says that only the father knew the exact moment that is true because at that moment he's moments from or he's very near going to the cross and he's emptied himself of his deity and now he is about to present himself as a sacrifice to the Lord. So when Paul says from First Thessalonians 5, 1, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. He's speaking about the second advent. Second advent, not the rapture. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night, not the rapture, second coming. For when they shall say peace and safety, like North Korea, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as to avail upon a woman, with child, and they shall not escape. This past week has been a very monumentous week. The Americans sat down with the North Koreans and had discussed peace. Israel is getting closer to Saudi Arabia. The World Cup kicked off uh, the day before yesterday. A lot of countries turned up. A lot of handshaking, a lot of embracing. And people are of the opinion that the world is coming together. Don't be deceived. But ye brethren, verse 4, are not in darkness... That that day should overtake you as a thief. In other words, you won't go through the tribulation. The tribulation isn't for you. The tribulation is for the children of the lie. Children of the devil. Not the children of God. Not the children of the light. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Go back to Exodus. So the Lord picks him Moses. And he picks him Pharaoh. Pharaoh. And he says to himself this. He says, I'm going to use Moses to relay my words to Pharaoh. Also, be mindful of this, that it wasn't just Pharaoh in the room. His wife was probably present, and his son was probably present as well. So you got Pharaoh, wife, firstborn. There may be others present, quite likely, but just picture that for one moment. One, two, three. Unholy trinity, perhaps. But let's not stretch it. Moses comes into the room. And he addresses Pharaoh. Back in the day, you would have to be invited into someone like Pharaoh's presence. You wouldn't, or you couldn't, just invite yourself in. But Moses and Aaron have an arrangement, shall we say, and they invite themselves into Pharaoh's court, and they start to lay down the law. On top of that, you've got wifey present and junior present. But 22, 23 from the book of exodus and go back to exodus chapter 10 if you haven't already it's picturing literal darkness and also spiritual figurative darkness and like i say if you think of the cross you think of jerusalem in pitch black pictured in rome and yet john mary and a handful of others were basking rejoicing in the light of christ picturing the faithful everlasting remnant 24 And Pharaoh called unto Moses and said, Go ye, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Let your little ones also go with you. Once again he's bartering. He's negotiating. He has no power. He has no rights. He can't really offer anything. As far as the negotiating uh, is concerned. If you go back to Yalta, 1945, the big three. Arrived in Yorta, you've got Roosevelt, you've got Churchill, you've got Stalin, and outside of the big three, such people were irrelevant. In other words, the big three were ruling the world. If you think of today, they call uh, the leaders of the spy world the Five Eyes. Chances are you haven't heard of the Five Eyes. The Five Eyes would be Britain, America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. And when those five eyes come together, they dominate the world. Or what they don't know is irrelevant. Well, Pharaoh was a powerful man and he's had his wings clipped, again, in a figurative sense. And here he's got the audacity to try and negotiate. But go back to Yalta, 45, it fell to the big three. Outside of the big three, your view was irrelevant. 2018, outside of the five eyes, What you know is irrelevant. It's the big five. Or go back to, or look at the UN, the permanent uh, security council members, the big five. Britain, America, France, Russia, China. They're the big five and they control the world. But here, Pharaoh is negotiating. He's trying to buy time. He knows a good thing when it's gone and he doesn't want to allow Moses and co. to leave. And yet he knows that he doesn't really have any power to stop it from taking place. 25. And Moses said. Thou must give us also sacrifices and burnt offerings. That we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. In other words you've kept us here for over 400 years. Pay your dues. Give us compensation. And we've spoken over the years about how Germany to the present is compensating Israel. Going back to World War Two, And yet before Britain uh, conquered Jamaica, and the Caribbean, and the West Indies. Portugal was there, and I think Spain was there as well. Mm. And you never hear much about that, do you? You always hear about Britain being the big bogeyman, the horrible white man, running the world, and all the wickedness and evil is down to the white man, etc., etc., etc. And the white man has to pay damages, so and so forth. But you don't hear much about the European colonies, do you? Parts of Africa were, and still are, run by the French... But you don't hear much about France having to pay compensation. Or if you think of Indonesia, conquered by the Dutch. They were brutal. I've never heard of anybody from Indonesia going to The Hague and suing Holland for conquering Indonesia. And not just conquering Indonesia, but taking their wealth, stripping their wealth back. It goes back to, I'm afraid to say, white people hating themselves. And they do so because they have been lied to. They've been deceived. But here, Moses has the right to ask from Pharaoh. And again, you must give us also sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. Because again, we've been here for 400 plus years. We've worked like dogs. You've taken our mortar from us. You expect us to build bricks with almost thin air. On top of that, we've lost many a man over the years, building your treasure cities. We feel that we are due something. 26. Our cattle also shall go with us. There shall not an hoof be left behind. For thereof must we take to serve the Lord our God. And we know not with what we must serve the Lord until we come hither. So he's reiterating once again what the Lord has told Moses. And Moses is now telling Pharaoh everything that the Lord wanted him to tell him. The words of the Lord are pure, tried in a furnace of fire seven times. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. If you mess around with the word of God, Revelation 22 says that the Lord will remove your name from the book of life. Now, let me just say this as a quick footnote. I do believe in once saved, always saved. Everlasting security or eternal security. And yet, i tell you something. Every time I look at Revelation 22, it puts the fear of God into me. Because I can't harmonise that with other parts of the scripture. And what people say is this. Well, John is speaking about unsaved people. But if he's speaking about unsaved people, first of all, why are they wasting their time with the Bible? It seems that saved people, or professing saved people, are the ones that mess around with the Bible unsaved people, apart from Ian McKellen, the homosexual reprobate who likes to rip pages out of the Bible, he wouldn't dare do that to the Quran, incidentally. Wouldn't dare. And the Quran also condemns homosexuality, just for the record. But when it says from Revelation 22 that if you add to the word or take from the word, Almighty God will take your name out of the book of life. And of course, you know what that refers to. It refers to one's place in eternity. Now if you're saved and you're messing around with the scripture, if you're adding or subtracting intentionally and you don't repent of that, it doesn't look very good for you. But if you confess it, 1 John chapter 1, and quit doing it, 1 John chapter 1, the Lord will forgive you and cleanse you. But 26 cattle also shall go with us, including men, women, children, young and old. There shall not an hoof be left behind. In other words, when we leave, we will leave nothing behind. Why? For thereof must we take to serve the Lord our God. And we know not with what we must serve the Lord until we come thither. So let's be fair to Moses. This is a picture of faith to depart from Pharaoh's presence, Pharaoh's palace, to depart with dagger eyes, going back to, you could just feel the atmosphere. You. You could cut it with a knife. If looks could kill, to be fair to Moses, he's come face to face with Pharaoh. He's seen Pharaoh down. He's seen Pharaoh's wife down. He's seen Pharaoh's firstborn son down. He's seen Pharaoh's lieutenants, the so-called holy, reverent fathers down. And therefore, he wants to make it crystal clear that when they leave, they all leave. Or they came as a package. They will leave as a package. Twenty-seven. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. So once again, Pharaoh is weighing up his pros, his cons, or he's weighing up his options, I should say, and he's very carefully and methodically weighing up his options. He doesn't want to allow Moses to leave too quickly. If you go back to 45, Roosevelt was very sick. Churchill had had two heart attacks and a stroke, and they travelled a long way. And the fittest of the three was Joseph Stalin, also the youngest of the three. And the big three, as they were referred to, in fact, let me correct myself, it wasn't Roosevelt, I think it was Truman. So you got Truman, Churchill, and Stalin. Of course, they would meet uh, previously. It was Roosevelt beforehand. He was very sick. Yeah, Attlee, of course, would succeed uh, Churchill. But the big three, when they initially got together after the war, they carved up Europe. And old Uncle Joe said, I want all of Eastern Europe And nobody could say no to him because the Americans were tired. Britain was bankrupt. And old Stalin had 15 million men Mm. behind him. And they were ready to move. So they were the top guys. They were the top guys in here. It's the same sort of a thing. But the Lord is dealing with Pharaoh. He's going to punish him. He's going to destroy him. Ultimately, going back to free will, going back to predestination. 28. And Pharaoh said unto him, get thee from me. Take heed to thyself. See my face no more. For in that day thou seest my face. Thou shalt die. Thou shalt die. What is sin? When Pilate came into the presence of the Prince of Peace, the last thing he would say to the Lord Jesus Christ would be, What is sin? When Moses came into the presence of Pharaoh, Pharaoh would say to Moses, thou shalt die. Famous last words. Billy Graham had the opportunity, according to tradition, take it or leave it, to witness to Marilyn Monroe. And he tried to get her attention around 1960, 1961. And he said uh, something along the lines of, can I share the Lord Jesus Christ with you? And she turned around and said to him, I've got no time for Jesus Christ. She was dead within a year. If you think of... Uh, The Beatles, if you think of John Lennon, he gave an interview in 1967, and in that interview, now infamous, back in 1967, he said, we, being the Beatles, are bigger than Jesus. We, being the Beatles, are more popular than Christianity. And we, being the Beatles, are going to outlive Christianity. In other words, Christianity is finished, and the Beatles are the biggest thing since sliced bread. Within 10 years of him saying that statement... And he said it six times, not just once. The Beatles are finished. Yoko Ono came on the scene and turned the Beatles on their head. And fast forward to 80, 81. John Lennon was shot down on the streets of New York like a common criminal. And you say, it's just a coincidence. Maybe it is. But those famous last words would haunt Marilyn. Those famous last words would haunt Lennon. And other famous last words like, what is sin? And according to tradition... Pilate would later go on and kill himself but here Pharaoh is threatening Moses thou shalt die but if you want to have something positive to say let me share some things with you John Wycliffe and John Huss both professional Catholic theologians went on to announce Romanism and subsequently were martyred by Rome Wycliffe not only had his Writings publicly burnt, but his corpse was later exhumed and burnt, while Huss was burnt alive at the stake. Such a loving church. Huss, as recorded by Rome, not only prayed for himself, but also his killers before he was murdered. And here's an interesting quote. He refused to retract anything, and so was condemned as a heretic, deposed and degraded, and handed over to the secular arm, which in turn condemned him to perish at the stake. At that time, the usual legal punishment of convicted heretics. So Rome would sub it out, if you will. Rome would allow the secular arm to do their bidding. Like in Southern Ireland, they are now allowing their doctors and nurses to murder their babies. And Rome sits back and says nothing. Haven't times changed? He suffered that cruel death with self-possession and courage. And when about to expire, cried out, it is said, Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us. Now that's what... I want to say, that's what you should want to say if you ever find yourself nailed to a tree or tied to a pit or about to be burnt alive. King James, unlike the humble Holy Fathers of Rome, once said of himself, I am neither a God nor an angel, but a man like any other. Could you imagine the Pope saying that? No, of course you can't. I am neither a God nor an angel, but a man like any other. David Brainard and I've written about Brainard, would die before the age of twenty nine, and his or one of his last statements would be as follows Quote There is nothing in the world worth living for but doing good and finishing God's work, doing the work that Christ did. I see nothing else in the world that can yield any satisfaction besides living to God, pleasing him, and doing his whole will. My greatest joy and comfort has been to do something for promoting the interest of religion and the souls of particular persons and now, in my illness, while I'm full of pain and distress from day to day, all the comforts I have is in being able to do some little char, meaning a small piece of work for God. Either by something that I say, or by writing, or some other way. That's what Marilyn should have said. That's what John Lennon should have said. But oh no, you can keep your Jesus Christ, and she's dead. Suicide, or was it? Beatles break up, 72, 73, within 10 years. John Lennon shot, I think, six times, by memory, interesting, six times. He would say six times that the Beatles are bigger than Jesus, and then eighty one, around about eighty one, shot dead by a madman. George Whitfield, ever the shrewd businessman, would turn the world upside down whether he preached the gospel. He was a lifelong friend of John Wesley, yet he often found himself rebuking Wesley for some of his more unconventional meetings, just for the record, Whitfield was a Calvinist. Wesley was an Armenian. So yes, you can be friends with a Calvinist if you wish. However, on one occasion, being New Year's Eve, 1738, after a long prayer service, which lasted until three o'clock in the morning, both men fell to the ground in reference to Wesley and Whitfield. Perhaps this was an early slain in the spirit account or just some religious hysteria. Students at Yale were also warned to avoid Whitfield. But here's the thing. On his deathbed, the following prayer was offered, quote, Lord Jesus, I am weary in thy work, but not of thy work. If I have not yet finished my course, let me go and speak for thee. Once more in the fields, seal the truth and come home to die. Lord Jesus, I am weary in thy work, but not of thy work. I love that. If I have not yet finished my course, he's around 85 when he's saying this like Wesley, who would die in the late 80s, let me go and speak for thee once more in the fields. Seal the truth and come home to die. That's the sort of thing that people should be saying. That sort of legacy that the Lord's people need to have. Never mind, get thee from me, take heed to thyself, see my face no more, for in that day thou seest my face, thou shalt die. What is truth? On both occasions, Christ is face-to-face with Pilate. Pilate is face-to-face with a personification of truth. Pharaoh is face-to-face with Moses. And when Moses and Pharaoh come face-to-face, when Pilate and Messiah come face-to-face, it is all in vain. You will see my face no more, for in that day you see us my face. You shall die. But of course, he was a liar, he wouldn't die, but Pilate certainly would. And also, Pharaoh. 29, and our clothes. close. And Moses said, Thou hast spoken well, I will see thy face again no more. Well, there'll be one more occasion from chapter 11, but at this point in the ministry of Moses, there was nothing more really to do or say. It was all downhill for Pharaoh, and it was all downhill for Pilate. So what we've looked at over the past three Sundays, as always, is sins, or a sin, beginning small and becoming big. You've seen lice, flies, and locusts. You've seen an east wind blowing in from the west, and we'll discuss that more when we get to chapter 15. Darkness, which may be felt. In fact, just very quickly go to Romans chapter 2. Darkness, which may be felt. I walked into that room... And the atmosphere was awful. You could just cut it with a knife. If looks could kill, dagger looks, etc., etc. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, verse 5, treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. That's a saved. But unto them, unsaved, that are contentious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. But glory, honour, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. For there is no aspect of persons with God. So again, you are the saved or unsaved, you are the for, the Lord, or you are against the Lord. And like I say, due to foreknowledge, the Lord looked down from eternity past to eternity future, and he would see everything and everyone, and he knew which way Pharaoh would go. He knew which way Pilate and Herod would go. He knows which way I'm going to go. In around 20 minutes' time, I'll leave my home, get into the car, go from A to B, do this or that, and any one of a certain uh, batch of things could happen to me, and I'll handle things in different ways. The Lord already knows what's going to happen and based on how i handle any given situation the consequences will obviously vary and that goes back to pharaoh having the chance to be saved and turning it down Pilate had the chance to be saved turned it down herod had the chance to be saved and turn it down thou shalt die lethal words what is sin lethal words